Beautiful. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that as we come today, that no matter who we are, we would realize our need for you and for your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that whether we are near you today or far from you, that you would draw us to yourself, that, that we would be those meek souls, those humble souls who will receive Christ still today. Or would you speak to us, speak hope to us, and speak peace to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. To just me, or does peace seem especially hard to come by this year? There may be no Christmas theme that resonates less with us right now than peace. We preach about peace, we sing about peace, we read about peace, but we don't feel much peace. Just on a surface level, life is already generally busy and stressful for most of us. Add to that the, the hustle and bustle of the holidays. It gets even crazier with parties and events and decorations and shopping and food and gifts and travel and more. How you doing? We ask, stressed yet blessed. <laughs> but then again, you may not even be feeling very blessed this year thanks to genuine suffering that you are walking through. From cancer to grief to infertility to unemployment to chronic pain to financial distress, it's definitely hard to have peace when there's so much chaos, anxiety, and turmoil inside of us. And then we look outside of ourselves and things aren't any better. They're often even worse. Pandemics, protests, and politics recently have exposed how much we hate each other. And our news feeds are full of international tensions, bloodshed, and outright warfare. And deep down inside... We long for peace. It is intuitively embedded in us. I believe that's because peace is an intrinsic attribute of our creator. And we bear his image. He's the God of peace. He designed our world to experience peace. The, he, the original Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom refers to more than just the absence of conflict or a mental calmness. It's talking about a wholeness, a fullness, a harmony or stability, and an absence of strife. It includes the active enjoyment of all that is good. And I believe that nearly everyone in our world recognizes the value of peace, of shalom. They desire it. 
even those fighting in violent wars are usually seeking to bring about their idea of peace. They ironically think the path to peace is violence. Yet in this broken world where sin has shattered our shalom, it just seems so unreachable, doesn't it? So, is the message of peace at Christmas still true for a weary, fallen, broken world? Is there a peace that we can know and experience and even feel, even now? Well, yes. But not because of some special Christmas spirit or cheer that we should just tap into. There is still peace that we can know today, even in the tumult of a world at war, because at Christmas we were given, once for all time, a prince of peace. Let's look to God's word to see this together, and think about what it means for us. So we're going to be all over the place today, but first we'll open up to the most famous of Christmas accounts in Luke chapter 2. So if you can grab a Bible... Look up Luke chapter 2 with me, and the page number's on the screen if you don't know where to find that. This is where peace is officially introduced as a core component of Christmas. On the night when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger, this scene took place. We'll be reading from verse 8. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And notice the irony there. An army of warriors is sent to announce peace. I think we risk losing the wonder at this scene because it's so overly familiar to us. But this is one of the most jaw-dropping, joyful moments in all of history. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So in a world full of bad news, terrible news, this would be good news. The best news, in fact. In a world full of brokenness and sadness, this would mean joy, great joy, he says. And this news would be for everyone on the planet. Amazing. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So it was personal unto you, unto lowly, unknown shepherds, and unto us even today. A newborn Savior, a Messiah, or Christ, and Lord had arrived. And then, to add an exclamation point to it all, the army shows up and sings, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God would get the glory, and we would get the peace. So, if peace arrived when Jesus arrived, what kind of peace was it then? Because obviously, there's still so much non-peace in our world. Well, let me give you three ways today that Jesus brings peace to our world, because it's really multifaceted, and I'll order them in terms of past, present, and future. Okay, so first, Jesus, our Prince of Peace, has brought peace between God and people. Our Prince of Peace has brought peace on earth between God and people. People. And believe it or not, this is the kind of peace we need more than anything else. Just imagine if you found out that one of your family members was super upset at you. You offended them or hurt them somehow. How would you feel? Upset yourself? Worried? Angry? Anxious to make things right with them? Unless you've been overly jaded, the one thing that we wouldn't be is indifferent. Now, maybe worse than that. Let's say you found out that some police officer saw you as public enemy number one. Or that someone else in authority, maybe your boss or your prof, had it out for you. (laughs) Or that some foreign government out there saw you as an enemy of the state and wanted you dead. In essence, if you found out that you were someone's enemy, how would that make you feel? Alarmed? Frightened? Your mind start racing with about how to fix the situation? Maybe you'd think, I need to either seriously run and hide, or perhaps more wisely, I need to turn myself in and figure this out. But the one thing we wouldn't do is shrug our shoulders and think, whatever. Now, if we would respond these ways when we learn that we're in hot water with other people, How much more alarmed should we be if we learn that we are an enemy of God's? That we have offended our maker beyond what we can fathom. That if if nothing changes, he actually has it out for us. Because this, my friends, is actually true. It's not a stretch to say that the first declaration of war on earth ever to take place was from us towards God. 
And ever since humanity's fall into sin, we have fought against him and fought against his ways. We have spurned the perfect shalom of God's creation, breaking the peace we had with him. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 5, if you haven't already. Romans 5, and while you find your place there, I'll read this quote from author Nancy Guthrie. She breaks the good news to us. That Jesus didn't come to destroy his enemies, but to make peace with them. He came to turn his enemies into friends. Left on our own, we are sinners who naturally fight against God. That makes him our enemy. But God has not left us on our own. Even though we've declared war on him deep in our hearts, he has declared peace with us. God gives us the grace to overcome our natural resistance toward him so that we can develop a deep friendship with him. He gives us the faith to trust in him, making us one of those with whom God is pleased. And remember, who's, what's promised to those whom God is pleased is peace. By Romans 5, this peace has been accomplished, achieved. Follow along with me. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is, that we, when we have faith in Christ our Savior, God declares us not guilty or righteous in his sight. So therefore, since we have been justified by faith, if this is true, then there's nothing still between us and God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how did Jesus make peace? Not just by being born, but by dying. Jump down to verse 6 with me, where it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you wonder why God would do any of this? The answer is, he loved us. He loved us. Verse 9, since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's what stands against us when we are still living against God. But we can be totally saved from the wrath of God by the love of God. Look, verse 10, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation or reconciled means he has restored a relationship or a friendship with us. So we rejoice. Whenever we see this world at war, we should realize that all this brokenness came about because we warred against our Creator and we got our world cursed. But then, 
we can also remind ourselves that this worst war of all can be over for us. There is peace with God and reconciliation to God available to us through Jesus. This is why Romans 5 doesn't read like a bitter airing of grievances or a declaration of war. It reads like a peace treaty. Things are looking up now. Jesus brokered peace. And God has already signed his part of the treaty. So, will you put your name on the other line today? Will you accept the peace that God offers you now? Because we can cease our hostilities against him and put our faith in Christ to save us. And shalom is thus restored between us and God. We would love nothing more to help you do this or to pray with you or discuss it more with you. So when we're done, talk to us. Talk to the person you, they, who brought you today. Talk to someone you know here who loves Jesus. Message us online. But we do believe that this is the, your greatest need in life to find peace with God through Jesus Christ. And it's not something to just shrug off or put off. You don't know how long you have until you actually stand before God. So will you meet him as an enemy or as a friend? Canadian missionaries Don and Carol Richardson wrote a book entitled Peace Child based on their experiences working with the Sawi people of New Guinea back in the 1960s. And the Richardsons had been working hard to translate the Bible into their native language, but there were huge challenges. See, culturally, the gospel made no sense to the Sawi people because they couldn't understand how someone who sacrificed themselves and died could ever be the true hero. Jesus looked weak to them, laughably weak. They actually thought Judas looked more heroic than Jesus. So the missionaries were getting pretty frustrated, discouraged. That all changed when they observed a, a certain cultural custom of the Sawi. See, there were three villages among them who seemed to be constantly at war with each other. One day, though, they managed to work out a peace treaty in a surprising way. They didn't sign on the dotted line or shake hands or, or even build a fence between them. They would actually exchange some children between villages. So a man would walk up, literally hand his son over to his enemy. And then a child from the enemy village would be given to him. Well, what, what would this do? We want to establish a strong trust between villages. As Don Richardson wrote, if a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. Plus, no one then wanted to wage war against a village who had their own children in it. 
And thus the Richardsons were finally able to make things click with the gospel, saying, that's what God did for us. Right? To make peace with us. We were who, who were his enemies. He handed his own son over to us. He can be trusted. In essence, God gave us a peace child. His own prince who would secure peace for the world. And Jesus didn't do this grudgingly, hating to have to take on our flesh, to, to live as us or die as us, die for us. Scripture says that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He was pleased as man with men to dwell. God may have been our enemy, but he didn't make himself our enemy. We made ourselves his. He's always been predisposed to love us, forgive us, be pleased with us. Our truest enemies are our sin and the devil, our inevitable judgment and death. But the, the good news of great joy of Christmas is that Jesus joined our side in the battle. And as our champion, he triumphed over all our enemies. So now we can join the angels in saying, glory to God in the highest. Our Prince of Peace has brought peace between God and people. And if that were the only aspect of the peace he offers, that would be enough. But that's not all. He didn't only declare peace in the past. He's making peace in the present. And not just between him and us, but between you and me. Here's how I put it. That our Prince of Peace is building peace between broken people. Our Prince of Peace is continually building peace between broken people. To see this, I'll have us flip over a few more pages to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. This book of Ephesians was written especially to Gentile believers or non-Jewish believers like many of us, maybe no, though not all of us. Verse 11 and 12 here in chapter 2 start out by explaining who we Gentile believers were before Jesus. Okay? And it says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's pretty bad. But that was before Jesus entered the scene. Verse 13, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So think about that. The little baby of Christmas had a tiny heart 
pumping blood through his veins. And one day, when he was grown, that blood would be spilled to bring us back to God. And look, verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace. So he's not only our prince of peace, he is our peace himself. Like without him standing in the gap, we would still be at war against God and each other. But he is our peace, and he's actually removed all the obstacles to peace now. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now notice that some of this is past tense too. Right? He's already made us one. So now, believers are learning to live out who we already are in Christ. But, don't miss it, it says, we can now have peace between each other because we have peace with God. He's reconciled us both to God in one body. That's Christ's body. And if we're in Christ... That means there was a time, just like the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, that we heard about this peace as it was preached to us, really by Christ himself. Look at verse 17. It says, And he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the, the, the result is a strong peace with one another. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together present tense, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the peacemaking work that Christ is doing is ongoing as he builds his church. Now, can we just marvel for a second? There's an organization on earth, you might say an organism, that spans across every border, and every nation, through countless people groups, languages, political parties, ethnic backgrounds, family histories, and personalities. And despite our various failures and foibles, divisions and denominations, hundreds of millions of people who have no business getting along at all, all agree on the same foundational beliefs and have devoted their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord. Like, you will find Jewish believers in Jesus, 
Palestinian believers in Jesus, Ukrainian believers in Jesus, Russian believers in Jesus, Burmese believers in Jesus, Sudanese believers in Jesus, many of them even here in our own church. But no matter where you go in this world, there are people you can worship with. And when we know how naturally divided and sinful we can be, this is staggering. Like truly, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Christ is continuing to build. You may not have realized it, but that invasion of peace into this fallen world began when? Began the first Christmas with the arrival of our Prince of Peace. So, if our Prince of Peace is building peace between broken people, just a couple questions then. If you are part of the family of God, do you appreciate this peace? Do you thank God for it? Like, hopefully, it's a little haven amidst all the hostility. Are you living in this peace among the people in your sphere of life? And Jesus shed his blood to make sure that nothing divided us from each other. So are we treating his sacrifice trivially and being content with conflict or strife? Or are when we hurt or are hurt, are we intentionally seeking out reconciliation, eager to maintain the peace? And finally, are we being messengers of this peace ourselves, following in Jesus' steps? So our Prince of Peace has brought peace between God and man. He's building peace between broken people and those first two points are astounding. Yet they might seem disappointing all the same. As I call this message, a prince of peace for a world at war, and these truths don't seem to really do anything about the wars raging in our world. So what do we do with this? Well, I think that this is where we need to actually have a bit of faith. Because the peace of Christ is not meant only for the past and the present, but also for the future. Our Prince of Peace will yet enact peace on earth. Our Prince of Peace will yet enact, enact a powerful, global peace on earth. Okay, what final place to turn in our Bibles? Isaiah 9. We read some of this earlier. Isaiah chapter 9. This is the only place in Scripture where the title of Prince of Peace actually appears. And these words, written by the prophet Isaiah, were definitely not written in a time of peace. See, Isaiah was ministering in Judah, the southern part of what used to be Israel. But it had been divided by conflict and war. 
When Isaiah wrote this, Judah was under attack from an alliance between their former countrymen in Israel and the people of Syria. And Isaiah says that when Judah heard about this alliance between them, their hearts shook like trees in the wind. They're terrified. However, the current king in Judah, Ahaz, was wicked and didn't trust God to save them. Instead, he turned to the powerful Assyrian Empire for help. Assyria did, in fact, come to their aid. But that later backfired badly. And Assyria would take advantage of their connection to Judah and actually end up attacking them themselves. So Isaiah was writing in the middle of all this political intrigue, military turmoil. In chapter 8, which we won't read, Isaiah prophesied that Judah would fall because of their lack of faith. Because they didn't trust God to save them, they were going to fall. But then chapter 9, here in chapter 9, his prophecy takes a massive turn for the bright side. Look how it starts. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah then talks about how God's people's joy would be like joy at the end of a war. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And this is actually because it appears wars would actually end here. Verse 4 says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So you see the picture of wars ending here. So in essence, Judah's coming doom would be like a long, dark night falling over the land. Isaiah may or may not have known how long that would last, like centuries long. But Isaiah foresaw that one day the sun would rise again. Light would shine again. And along with the light, joy and freedom would spread across the land. So, what would bring about such a drastic change? Believe it or not, a baby's birth. Verse 6, for to us, a child is born. A very special child who would save his people, lead them as a king. I don't have to tell you who this is. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, when Jesus was born, the global scene wasn't much better, maybe darker than ever. God's people had been conquered and reconquered and exiled and subjugated and divided and all kinds of stuff. And, and Rome was in charge now with their notorious Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They thought they brought peace on earth. But really, they just forced their peace on everyone through overwhelming power. Israel and Judah were occupied, oppressed, Definitely not feeling at peace. But the night was darkest just before the dawn. And Jesus' birth was the new dawn. But then we wonder, then why didn't Jesus actually bring total peace on earth when he came? Well, there's a long, complicated answer about how biblical prophecy works. But the short answer is that Isaiah was seeing aspects of both Jesus' first and second comings. Jesus did come as a child who was born to us, identified as wonderful counselor, prince of peace, and so on. And he did inaugurate his kingdom in a spiritual sense already. And he currently reigns as king of kings in heaven over the hearts and lives of those who follow him. But at the same time, his kingdom has not come in its universal fullness yet. Kind of like what we're talking about in Ecclesiastes, right? Living in the already but the not yet. The New Testament fleshes this out to show how Christ is still going to come again. And when he comes a second time, he will reign over everyone and everything. And like a royal robe being shrugged on, the government of the entire world will be placed onto his divinely capable shoulders and his power and his peace will increase forever. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. How can we trust that this will happen? Well, look at the very end there. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts. He's got an army of heavenly warriors at his command. And even if he didn't, he's the Lord of all. Yahweh. He could do it all himself. As an aside, isn't it so fitting that Isaiah said that the Lord of the angel armies would bring peace and then the Lord sent an army of angels to announce that peace? But think about that word zeal for a minute. It refers to intense eagerness, fervor, or determination. So this means God was eager to send Jesus to earth to accomplish all this. It means Jesus was determined to take on flesh and eventually go to the cross for us. He would not slouch in his passion for peace. 
He would powerfully bring it about. But this also means that he is zealous to send Jesus back again. To establish his kingdom forever. And when God promises this, you can count on it. He will bring peace on earth one day. When he comes again, though, it won't be as a baby. The prince will return as a king. You may have trouble believing this will happen, as it's hard to picture when, when we're living in the long darkness again, it seems. When will, will the light ever return? But this is part of what having faith in Jesus means. Staking your life, your reputation, and your future on him. I mean, if you, if you don't believe Jesus will bring total peace one day, what hope do you have? If I didn't believe in the peace on earth that's promised us in Christ, I would despair. But I do believe. And I hope. And I hope that you believe too. No matter what happens now. Peace has come, peace is coming, and peace will yet come. So we long for it, and we wait for it, and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Listen to Sean Nolan's thoughts here. It says, that baby in a stable was peaceful and adorable, but when he returns a second time, the ledger will be made right. Yes, all will someday recognize his terrible majesty and might. No one will stand on that day. All will bow, things in heaven and on earth. While we dwell below, we may not be protected from all our enemies' blows, but we do rest firmly in the hand of the Savior and King. In him, we find our hope, despite the injustice in this world. In him, we find our joy, despite the violence that tries to rob us. In him, we find peace despite those that insist on war. And in him, we know love. Maybe better yet, listen to what Jesus told his followers himself right before he died. If you think about it, their thoughts must have sounded similar to some of our own these days. But how could we be so untroubled when Godly people are dying. And when everything that we hold dear is under attack. And when people have it out for us. Maybe even seems like they're coming for us. And when, it, when maybe it even seems like God's forgotten us. And in that very context, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, we can have peace in our hearts, even when our world is falling apart, because, and only because, we trust him. Despite all the war and the pain in our world, we know it will be well for those who fear God. We have 
faith that it will. Therefore, today we preach and we sing and we celebrate our Prince of Peace. And we so look forward to the day when his peace has transformed the entire world. One song that describes our current tension well is, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. If you don't know the story behind the song, it was written by the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on Christmas Day, 1863. Right in the heart of the American Civil War, when so many tragically died. Longfellow's own 19-year-old son had gone off to war and had just been nearly paralyzed by it. So it was also during a long, painful season of grief for Longfellow, as his precious wife had died in a fire not even three years before this. So on a very difficult, tumultuous, anxiety-riddled Christmas for him, Longfellow heard the church bells ringing in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but he felt the dissonance. And he penned these words, which were later put to music. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. After several other verses, he wrapped up his poem this way. But in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. We too may often feel like hate is mocking the song of peace on earth. But it won't forever. So we confess in faith that the wrong shall fail. And the right will prevail with peace on earth. All because our Prince of Peace came to earth. And he will come again. Father, please help us long for the day of your son's return. Fix our eyes there, and in this world of pain and sorrow and sin, may we rest in him. May we find peace in our hearts because of him today. We look to you now, in Jesus' name, amen.